the Vancouver True Crime Podcast welcomes you. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for the amazing growth. Thank you for all the new listeners, the old listeners, the loyal listeners. I love you all. Even my haters, because you motivate me every single day. Got some amazing news. Our numbers on Spotify have now reached parity with iTunes. When I first started this podcast, first, second year, 70% of my download listeners was on iTunes, and I really appreciate that. But Spotify has now reached parity. I'm so happy about that. We have listeners in across Canada, United States, United Kingdom and Ireland, Australia, and I'm happy to report we're getting a lot new listeners in Mexico. Love you very much, Mexico. Amazing country, amazing culture. Love you guys very much. Enjoyed spending lots of times and vacations there. I hope to be there soon. Did some analytics on my social media. Numbers on TikTok are exploding. Have some videos that almost reached a million in a very short time. I, of course, Instagram, which has kind of been my main platform, 24 million impressions for 2022. So, it's all thanks to you. And I have some even better news. With the help of some of my followers, we've been catching some bad dudes. Been putting some bad dudes behind bars. We caught a major creep. One of Canada's most wanted creeps is now in custody. Thanks for to your help. And we might be helping in the location of a young teenage girl who's currently being trafficked. More to report on that soon. So this is an important platform for me is because, like I said, from the beginning, I wanted to build an organic brand that provided community advocacy, entertainment, sometimes even a little comedy. We all need a little comic relief. Provide value. Have lots of plans for 2023. And, you know, I'm this, you know, out of the world, grateful and happy to be in the position that I'm in. And again, none of it's possible without any of you. So this series, Evil Intentions, Narcissistic Monsters, in this episode, we're going to get into dark psychology. I'm going to do more deep dive on the Paul Bernardo. If you haven't listened to the first episode in this series, please listen to that police interview with Paul Bernardo because I want to illustrate the the capacity of these narcissists, their, their abilities. Paul Bernardo, if you, if you understand his crimes, which I, I, in part two, I think it illustrates his monstrosity. And I will be keep doing a deep dive in Paul Bernardo because Paul Bernardo is a pure narcissistic monster, hence the name of the series. Here's a man that was capable of some of the most horrific atrocities in Canadian history and could sit in a police interrogation room and lie with ease and with conviction 
almost put the investigators on their back foot, blaming them, saying, you're the bad guys, you're the liars. And that is what you're dealing with when you're dealing with these narcissistic monsters. Of course, not all narcissists are, are Paul Bernardo, but they all have the potential because they lack empathy. Once you realize that you're dealing with a narcissist, a malignant narcissist, they don't care about you. They just want to use you for whatever reason. And this is what we're going to get into. Before I start the podcast, I want to talk a little bit about myself. Uh, If you listen to my podcast from the beginning, I've been always open about sharing uh, my life and what I've been going through, my ups, my downs, the embarrassing moments, the funny moments, my tragedies. And I've been an open book. I make myself accessible. You can contact me directly anytime you want, either through my Facebook Messenger, my Instagram, and I'm always willing to talk to everybody and anybody, even people that want to challenge me on my points of view, and I have had that. I've had to deal with every type of person since starting this uh, podcast. You know, I've interacted with hundreds of thousands of people through my various platforms, and sometimes it's just comments, sometimes it's direct messages, sometimes it's phone calls, sometimes it's emails, and I've always make myself available. So I wanted to talk a little bit, I'm not going to get too much into the details, but the last year has been pretty challenging through some personal stuff and things I've been witnessing. And from 2020, when my wife died, I had a lot of post-traumatic stress that I worked through. I went and saw a very prominent uh, psychologist and psychiatrist who helped me get through a lot of trauma and kind of get back in touch with my emotions and be able to be the person that I'm that's sitting here doing this podcast today because it was important for me not to be a damaged, broken person because I still have small children and I have a lot of goals and ambitions that I wish to do. So I wanted to talk about last year, um, due to some of the trauma and this horrible, you know, stuff I witnessed, I had a lot of post-traumatic stress and sometimes I probably came across kind of a little erratic, maybe a little neurotic and stressed out and, and maybe, maybe some people who talk to me a lot would, would probably recognize it. But I feel a lot better. I feel a lot better. I feel a lot more clear-headed. I feel a lot more focused. And I'm sharing this because a lot of people have mental health issues, especially in Vancouver, my hometown. For whatever reason, this seems to be the mental health capital of Canada. And I've suffered from mental health. I've suffered from anxiety. I've suffered from depression. suffered from post-traumatic stress. And the way that post-traumatic stress affects me is I kind of shut down and sometimes I might appear a little neurotic, speak fast, repeat my words, sometimes stumble on words, make mistakes on words, and, and it's like my head is spinning. And then I have to slow myself down. So... I'm telling you it's important to work on yourself and how I deal with my post-traumatic stress is I try to first recognize that I'm going through it. 
recognize the symptoms. It's it's slightly kind of similar in my case to anxiety, but a little bit different if that makes sense. And sometimes, you know, to help with post-traumatic stress, I was using a lot of marijuana because, it, you know, I don't really drink. I drink very light. I drink maybe sometimes when I go out, I'll have a few drinks. But I don't, I'm not a, a heavy drinker. I'm not a regular drinker. So I was smoking a lot of weed to help me get through the post-traumatic stress. But I'm right now, I've quit weed because I want to be very clear-headed. I want to be very sharp. I want to be very dialed in doing these podcasts. I've done a lot and a lot of writing. I've probably written, just in the last few days, I've probably written probably about 7,000 uh, words just on this new narcissistic podcast series. And marijuana helps, but it also hurts, if that makes sense. It helps with the symptoms of post-traumatic stress for me. It helped me sleep. It helped me kind of just kind of dull the the symptoms. I'm not on any medication. I don't take antidepressants. I don't take any anti-anxiety medication. So I was self-medicating with marijuana. And again, I believe that marijuana is better than drinking every day. It's you know, it's I think it's a a better option, and I think it's also possible uh, a good uh, choice for maybe for harm reduction if you're using heavier drugs, right? I'm just saying these are just options. But again, everything has a time and place, and I'm not here to judge people for whatever their circumstances. But I just wanted to share more what was been going on with me behind the scenes. Now, you know, again, I'm in a very good place, uh, clear-headed. I haven't smoked any weed in a bit. I'm sleeping better. I'm having dreams again, which is nice. The, the, one of the things that I found with cannabis, I don't, I don't really get into a deep REM sleep. And I'm just having really crazy, lucid, uh, vivid dreams again, which is kind of cool. I enjoy that. I enjoy... I feel a lot more articulate, I feel sharper, and I feel like I'm getting more stuff done. So I just wanted to share that with you guys because, you know, you guys are important to me and it's important for me to be kind of an open book with with you guys and kind of share my journey making this podcast. This podcast started with the most humble beginnings. I was in a kind of a crossroad. I was, my background is... Uh, corporate sales. I did a lot of startups and business development. It was getting more and more stressful type of work. The The type of uh, type of opportunities we're getting were getting more and more kind of elaborate and stressful. Made good money at it. The money was good, but the hours were long, really long hours. Some days, I'd, some weeks, I'd work 90-hour weeks with deadlines and putting out fires, dealing with customers. It, you know, it took a toll on me. I gained a lot of weight because I'm eating out all the time, eating out in food fairs, eating out, in, you know, you know, client dinners and getting invited to this and that. And you're always grabbing food on the go. And I got pretty heavy at my heaviest. I weighed almost 280 pounds. I had a lot of joint issues. I had a lot of um, body pain and I did not like the way I looked. Every time I looked in the mirror, I was like, hey, that's not me. Who the who's that guy? So, I'm happy to report right now, as you're talking to me, I weigh about 220 pounds. I'm six foot one, and I'm probably the leanest I've been in a long time. I'm athletic, I'm active, and it's important for me to be that way because I have small children and I have to keep up with them. Little, they have little feet, but they can run fast. 
So I want to be around for them. And that helped a lot too because your self-image is important. People will try to say it isn't, but it is. The way you look, the way you feel is important. It's important to like the way you look and like the way you feel. So I'm happy about that. Those are good things, and I worked very hard. That weight was very difficult to take off, but it did come off. And I'm just saying I'm always here to encourage people. If anyone ever wants to reach out to me about stress, anxiety, weight loss, all those things, I'm always available to help people because that's that's what the whole platform is about. It's about community. It's about helping everybody and us being a community that looks out for each other. Dangerous predators, your mental health, your well-being. So again, thank you for listening to that. I just wanted to share a little bit about what's been going on with me. Everything that I'm dealing with is being handled. I have I have a lot of excellent people, but thanks to the platform, because of this platform I built, I have met some truly amazing people, people that are truly spectacular that I'm so grateful to have in my life. And if you're a cool person, I'd be always happy to meet you too. So let's get on with the show. So we're going to talk about this. We're going to I want to get into manipulation, styles of manipulation and what keeps a person in in an abusive relationship. We're going to talk not necessarily in this episode. In this episode I'm going to share I'm going to, I found some amazing more clips of Paul Bernardo. I found one of Carla Homoka. I'm going to put those in the end. But I, but the important is in this series, I'm going to focus on three real distinct terrible monsters. Paul Bernardo, Canadian, one of the worst serial killers in Canada. Clifford Olson, one of the worst monstrous serial killer, narcissistic piece of shit from BC, the beast of BC who murdered children for his pleasure and got a payday for it, which is so disgusting. And then, of course, Ted Bundy, who I feel is a pure sociopathic uh, narcissist, very manipulative. And what these three have in common is their ability to manipulate at a master level. All three of them were able to manipulate people and manipulate the system. So criminal and deviant psychology is a study of criminal and deviant behavior including psychological motivations and methods used by criminals and other deviant individuals. In this podcast, like I said, um, it's a true crime podcast primarily, and I will be profiling, you know, serial killers and cults and other uh, evil people. But in this uh, series, I'm more interested in the psychology, the intentions, and the manipulation that they used. So it's important to note that it's important to note that dark psychology is not a formal field of study, and it's not recognized by most academic communities. It's not always used for a negative purpose. Many of the concepts and techniques fall under the umbrella of dark psychology can use for the positive purpose of therapy and personal development like for example NLP there are some people that really believe that NLP is like this most manipulative tool I've used NLP in the business world for personal development it just makes me look at how language is used and it makes me uh, use language more effectively 
So just thought I'd add that in there. Let's go into red flags. Let's talk about red flags, red flags, because it all comes down to relationships, right? You start a relationship, you get into a relationship, everything is good. People always talk about the red flags. I saw these red flags. Did you ignore the red flags or when the relationship is bad? That's the first thing we're like, where's there any red flags? So red flags is something we hear a lot about, talked about. Here are the few red flags that may indicate that you are being manipulated by a new person when you're dating. They can be overly complimentary or affectionate early on. If someone's showering you with excessive compliments or affection early on, it could be a red flag that they're trying to manipulate you. Sometimes people are just, you know, maybe they're head over heels. When I was young and kind of dumb, if you listen to the early podcast I did about Elizabeth, the 35-year-old stripper I dated when I was 25, I was overly affectionate complimentary. I wasn't love-bombing her. I was just head over heels because, you know, I just was very smitten and kind of naive and, you know, kind of dumb. Back to the red flags. They ask you for personal information or favors before you know them well. If someone is asking you for personal information or favors before you know them well, it could be a, a sign they're trying to use that information to control and manipulate you. There are cases where it's like they're digging in your past, maybe how many people you slept with or things like that. And then in an argument, they call you a name and because you slept with so many people or they use that to guilt you. You know, that's just a, an easy example. They rush the relationship. If someone is trying to move the relationship forward at an accelerated speed, it could be a sign that they're trying to manipulate you and making a commitment before you're ready. I believe that's a very uh, strong red flag. They isolate you from your friends and family. That is a very common and, and, in my opinion, a very serious red flag. You see that in cults. You see that in narcissistic abuse. That's something you see over and over again. They isolate you from other people that could have influence on you, family members, uh, friends, maybe your community, maybe you're from another country. They try to get you to move uh, to another country or move across the country where you have no family or friends so they can just isolate you and have full control over you. We'll get more into isolation a lot because isolation comes up. To me, isolation, in my opinion, is one of the biggest red flags. They make you question your own thoughts or memory. If someone's trying to make you question your own thoughts and memory, this could be a sign of manipulation. That's also called gaslighting. We're going to get really deep into gaslighting um, with the narcissistic expert that I plan to do some shows with. That's going to be one of our first shows is on gaslighting because that's something I've had a lot of experience on the receiving end of, and it's pretty hurtful and it's pretty disturbing. It really, it really does mess with your head when it's done very effectively. They use guilt and shame and fear to control you. Again, oh, you slept with so many people, right? Make you feel guilty about it. You lack morals. You lack ethics, right? Control you. 
If someone's trying to make you feel guilty, ashamed, or fearful in order to control you, it could be a sign that they're really trying to manipulate you. They're trying to make you dependent on them. Again, going back to the isolation, someone making you dependent on them for, for your emotional or material needs, that is a red flag that they're trying to manipulate you. We're going to get more deeper into this. I'm kind of just kind of trying to give a broad range of manipulation because it's a very complex topic. And as time goes on and as we kind of peel the layer of onions, we're going to get really get deeper in this. But here we go again. So here's a question or a question. Question. Why do people stay in toxic, abusive relationship? That's a common thing. Why didn't you leave? Why didn't you leave? Why didn't you leave? Didn't you see the red flags? Why would you stay in such an abusive, toxic relationship? There's a number of reasons why people stay in toxic and abusive relationships. Here's a few examples. How about fear? Many people who are in abusive relationships are afraid of their partners in domestic violence situations. They may fear for their own safety if they try to leave. Low self-esteem. Sometimes over time, through isolation, through the gaslighting, through the other tactics that we're going to talk about and learn about together, their self-esteem is eroded. So, because their self-esteem, because their self-esteem is so eroded, they believe they're not worthy of a better relationship. Or they may believe they are the blame for the partner's behavior through the manipulation. Here's a big one. And I believe this happens a lot in Vancouver, my hometown, because this city is possibly one of the most expensive cities to operate in for a variety of reasons. Wages are typically lower than other parts of the country, yet it's more expensive than other parts of the country. So financial dependent. I remember a, a study I read. It was like 26% of couples would separate if it wasn't for the financial dependence, sharing a house, sharing a mortgage, sharing bills. Maybe if you had to leave, you're not going to be able to live in such a nice place. So financial dependence is a huge reason why people stay in very toxic, destructive relationships. Some people stay in toxic, abusive relationships because they are financially dependent on the partner and cannot afford to leave. And there's love. Some people stay in abusive relation because they're still in love with their partner and they hope they will change. When Alexandra, my late wife, was going through her mental health issues, and I didn't quite understand all of the complexity of her mental health, uh, I made a podcast about it that really breaks down her deterioration of her mental health. And that was my reason, too. I was hoping with the right help, she would go back to be the old Alexandra that I met and loved. So sometimes people stay in an abusive relationship because they still love their partner and they hope they will change. Hopelessness. People in abusive relationships may feel hopeless. They feel there's no way out of the situation through the gaslighting, 
through the manipulation, through the abuse, just being chipped away, chipped away. And I've seen relationships like that where one of the partner just has the dead eye looks because they just had literally everything, their self-worth, their self-esteem taken away from them. Lack of support. Some people may not have support systems through the isolation because people can rely on help to leave the relationship. So lack of support. Maybe their family members are toxic. Maybe and sometimes these people are so abusive. I've seen this before where there's a couple in a relationship. That partner that's toxic has convinced the other side of the family how wonderful they are. And everyone's saying, oh, he's so awesome. You can, you know, so they feel that there's no way out because no one's going to support their decision to leave the relationship. That there's kids and there's other uh, responsibilities that can compound that as well. Sometimes it's cultural and religious reasons in some cultures, some religious backgrounds. It may be pressure to stay in the marriage or relationship, no matter the circumstances. So it's important to understand that leaving an abusive relationship can be difficult and dangerous. It's important if you are currently in a situation like this, it's important to have a safety plan before leaving. Seek professional help from counselors, therapists, and support groups. Seek help, get a plan. But again, it's your life. It's worth saving. Corrosive persuasion, also known as brainwashing. It refers to the use of intense psychological pressure, such as prolonged isolation, sleep deprivation, and emotional manipulation. It's to change the individual's belief and behavior. Here are a few forms of coercive persuasion that can be used. Isolation, we're back to isolation again. Isolation is really a powerful and a very uh, an effective way to uh, control someone. The individual is isolated from their friends or family and any other sources of support, making them more dependent on the group, in case if it's a cult, or a person exercising control. Sleep deprivation. The individuals kept awake for long periods of time, making them more susceptible to manipulation and less able to resist the partners or group, if it's a cult, demands. So sleep deprivation is something I suffered from uh, when my kids were really small. Uh, my wife's health deteriorated. I had to take on the, the kind of the heavy lifting of that, so I'd be up. Uh, all night because my daughter would not sleep and then I was also tasked with having to run the household and I was no a thousand percent what it's like and what it feels like <clears throat> to be in a sleep deprivation uh, mindset. Physical and emotional abuse. When the person is subjected to physical and emotional abuse, such as humiliation, harassment, intimidation, it breaks down their sense of self, making them more compliant. Repetition indoctrination, also known as nagging. The individual 
is exposed to repetitious messages and ideas that are reinforced through constant repetition and reinforcement. So someone saying over and over, it works. Someone just, you know, saying the same thing over and over and over. You're no good. You're stupid. You'll never be anything. Just constant, just chipping away at you. It definitely has a terrible effect on your mental health and your well-being. Confessional or public self-criticism. Individuals encouraged to confess their sins. Maybe this is more in a cult or in a... Um, I've had sometimes situations like this in really toxic workplaces. Uh, one really bizarre circumstance is I was working in this corporate environment, the very toxic, very awful. The job went from being amazing to being absolutely terrible. They hired these real hotshot consultants that came in that was going to make this company into a $100 million company. The, the, the owners, the the directors and the C-level suite got sold on this pipe dream. And it was like some crazy indoctrination. Like, and, and one part of it, you know, after being put through this horrible gauntlet of this retraining, we each, even though we all hated it and, and none of it worked and none of it was effective, the only people that got anything of it was these consultants that end up getting a, a ton of money. We each individually had to go in front of the rest of the company. We're talking 100 employees, 100 plus employees, and tell how wonderful the training was and how we're grateful and how we're going to use it. And we're going to be so it, it was insane. It was totally insane. It pissed me off. And I left the company soon after that. But I could imagine it being that type of technique being used in other circumstances and how awful it would be. Guilt tripping. There's a classic. Individuals made to feel guilty and ashamed and responsible for other people's actions or feelings. That's pretty self-explanatory. Love bombing. We're going to get into love bombing. Love bombing comes up again. It's a very diverse topic. I want to really talk about this topic, especially with my narcissistic abuse expert. We're going to probably do an entire show on love bombing. Maybe that could be our Valentine's show. A person or group exercising control, showering the individual with excessive attention, affection, and privileges, all over to build trust and create a sense of belonging. In one of the podcasts, I think it was Vancouver the Beautiful and Ugly, I think it was part six, I talk about this crazy Christian cult. They definitely use love bombing on me. I remember when I first attended one of the churches, every attractive woman, it was a big congregation, just surrounded me. Just, oh, we're so happy to have you, Mark. All the affection and hugs and, you know, back rubs and, you know, almost like they were fighting over me and just like, yeah, it's pretty effective. So if you coming from a place of low self-esteem or let's say your last relationship was really abusive, let's say you went, let's say this, you were in a relationship with some person that was a, an avoidant, never gave you compliments, never told you how good you looked, never did anything for you, just ignored you, or you were a child of a neglectful parent. And all of a sudden you meet someone or someones 
that just tell you how awesome you are and gifts and money and clothes and hugs, affection, sex, whatever it is. It can be pretty powerful. It can be very intoxicating and it could be like a drug. Mind control. The people or person exercising control using various psychological techniques such as hypnosis, brainwashing, and other forms of manipulation to control the thoughts and behaviors and emotions of individuals. So hypnotherapy is something I use myself. I, I do hypnotherapy and uh, but it definitely you know in a, in a dark way I could see it being very effective for mind control absolutely as someone who's very skilled at it one of the series I want to do is is on Charlie Manson and I remember watching a story about Charlie Manson who was so good at hypnotherapy or hypno hypnosis he was hypnotizing people in jail to give them the effects that they were on drugs. So if they, he would say to a person, hey, you want to smoke a joint? Want to feel like what it's like to smoke a joint? And he would hypnotize them and they would feel like they just smoked a joint or they took heroin. But for one person, it didn't work because they never used heroin, so it didn't work. But but just shows you how powerful hypnotherapy is. And from a very skilled practitioner, it can be used for good or it can use, be used for evil, just like any tool. Fire can heat your food up and fire could burn your house down. So emotional abuse can be incredibly damaging. And like I talked about in the very beginning of the beginning of this series about emotional abuse, and we're going to get into emotional abuse. We're going to probably do whole shows of emotional abuse. And in my opinion, emotional abuse for me is a lot more damaging than physical abuse. I can handle myself in a fight, even if I lose. I've been in fights where I won and I lost. They suck when you lose. It takes time to heal. You lick your wounds and you move on. Emotional abuse messes with your mind. It messes with your whole lens of how you see and interact with the world. It erodes your self-worth. It erodes your self-esteem. And it makes it hard to do the little things. And if you can't do the little things, you can't do the big things. Simple as that. So if you've been... Um, experiencing emotional abuse or any of the things you talked about it's important that you get help it's important to understand first of all what's going on um, if you can get a therapist a counselor a trusted family member or a friend it's important to build support systems that's the best way to get out of things is first you have to recognize what's going on and then you build uh, a group of support therapists family members trusted people in your community and do what's best for you to get help. Um, some of these things, simple simple thing is sometimes it's just getting a good night's sleep, getting your rest, eating well. When I was going through my stuff with um, Alexandra as her mental health was deteriorating, I started to work on my health because I knew um, the stress of it was going to kill me. I had panic attacks. I had stress, this unbelievable, because I didn't understand what was going on. If you listen to the podcast, it's pretty self-explanatory. But one of the things I started doing was really taking care of myself, started taking supplements, vitamins, trying to sleep as much as I can. And I started exercising and I started eating better. And I already started my weight loss process during that. And that saved it. So I want to end this and then I'm going to add on a bunch of clips I found 
Paul Bernardo related because again I'm using Paul Bernardo in that sake as one it's monstrous it is a true crime podcast and I want people to remember uh, what he did so it's not forgotten and also I want to illustrate again the capabilities of a narcissist monster what they're capable of the damage they can inflict so that's why Paul Bernardo in this series is my poster boy for narcissistic monsters but before I end things I want to talk about common words and phrases used by manipulators these are common phrases that you'll hear so when you recognize it so let's say right now you're listening to this and someone's telling you this over and over and over again. Trust me, you're being manipulated. And when you're being manipulated, it's never for your own good. So here are the common phrases. We're gonna, I'm going to read a bunch of them. I know what's best for you. Trust me. It's for your own good. You're just too sensitive. Oh, you're overreacting. You're imagining things. It's all in your head. I'm doing this for you. Hey, you owe me. You should be grateful. If you really love me, you would dot, dot, dot. You're being paranoid. You're being irrational. I'm the only one that understands you. I'm the only one that cares for you. I'm the only one who can help you. Oh, it's not that bad. You're just being difficult. You're being paranoid. Now, understand, though, sometimes in context, these can be in a, in a, in a context where you're not being manipulated. But what I'm saying, what, what I mean by being, if they're saying this commonly, when you have a concern, you're trying to address something, you're trying to say or you're not happy with something, oh, it's all in your head. It's not that bad. You're just being difficult. You're just being paranoid. You're just imagining thing. And listen to your gut feeling. Listen to how you feel. That's important. It's important that you feel strong about your inner voice. So I'm going to leave it here. I'm going to be keep making podcasts. I have so much material. I'm going to do my best to get these out each and every day I, that I can amongst all my other responsibilities. But this is an important series. And like I said, I'm very excited. I'm having some guests come on on this. And uh, I really appreciate all the support. I really am grateful that with together... We built a platform that's doing some good stuff. We're putting some bad guys away and we're uh, making a difference in our community. And none of it is possible without you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. It was one week ago today that St. Catherine's team, Kristen French, disappeared. Today, Niagara Regional Police say they have received hundreds of calls. And as CFTO's Tom Hayes reports, one caller witnessed the suspect's car leave the area where French was believed to have been abducted. Inspector Vince Bevan says his officers are taking are up to 60 calls a minute. Callers are providing information not only about vehicles, but people as well. 
All of these tips are useful and hopefully will continue. Police say they have received information saying that the cream-colored Camaro or Firebird left the parking lot of the Grace Lutheran Church and headed east along Linwell Road. The witness says the car was driving erratically towards Geneva Road. Meanwhile, at Holy Cross Secondary School today, students started a green ribbon campaign. It's great feeling knowing that uh, whenever we look at our green ribbons, we, uh, we think of Kristen and uh, hope for the best. Kristen's parents are also wearing ribbons and like the students have not given up hope. They feel so strong that the same as we do, that she's still out there and they just want to express that feeling to the public and to Christy if she has a chance to watch that everybody's behind her and to hold on until the police get there and get her. Tonight, police will start a street-proofing program. Parents of school children can take part tonight at Centennial Library. Tom Hayes, CFDO News, St. Catharines. Police in St. Catharines hope they have a new lead in the disappearance of Kristen French. Police want to talk with the driver of a gray Horizon or Omni who may have witnessed a cream-colored Camaro speeding from the area where French was last seen. CFTO's Tom Hayes reports. Niagara Regional Police say the driver of the gray Omni, similar to this car, could have vital information in the abduction of Kristen French. Police believe the cream-colored Camaro suspected in the abduction left the Grace Church parking lot on Linwell Road and headed east. The Camaro, driving erratically, may have turned onto Geneva Street, where it nearly collided with a gray Omni or Horizon in the intersection of Geneva and Scott. If you were the driver of this gray Omni or spotted the car in the area, you are urged to phone the hotline number at 1-800-267-6357. Police received this information yesterday during a spot check along Linwell Road. Today, police are following up on other interviews with some people who say they may have seen the cream-colored Camaro. In a sad twist of this story, police say there is a group in St. Catharines asking for donations on behalf of Kristen and the Holy Cross Secondary School. Police warn that these solicitations have not been authorized by Holy Cross or the French family. Tom Hayes, CFTO News. Good evening. Immense relief tonight and some closure for the families of Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey. Gruesome videotapes depicting the rape and torture of the schoolgirls have now been incinerated during an emotional gathering. CFTO's Alicia K. Markson spoke with Kristen's mother, Donna French, in St. Catharines today. I mean, every time those tapes were viewed, it's a violation of, of the girls involved. And uh, to know that that's not going to happen again means a lot. Donna French is grateful that after a long battle, the horrific videotapes of her daughter Kristen and Leslie Mahaffey being raped and tortured by Paul Bernardo are finally gone forever. It was very, very emotional. There was uh, the Mahaffey's and uh, my husband and my son was with me. The, uh, there were members of the Green Ribbon, uh, Chief Bevan and uh, Chief Nichols was there. and. Um, Superintendent Gary Bolio, who arranged all of this. The tapes which were incinerated helped convict Paul Bernardo of two counts of first-degree murder in 1995. They contrast sharply with this home video of Bernardo and his then-wife, Carla Homolka. Tim Danson, lawyer for the French and Mahaffey families, says all known copies of those tapes and a significant amount of other materials were destroyed yesterday in an undisclosed location. As everybody knows, the Supreme Court of Canada has said no to Bernardo 
uh, and therefore, in our view, um, uh, there are no further uh, legal proceedings uh, and therefore not required for the administration of justice. The tapes were not discovered by police during a comprehensive search of Bernardo's home after his 1993 arrest. Bernardo's ex-wife, Carla Homolka, eventually told police about the videotapes and testified against Bernardo as part of a plea bargain. She's serving a 12-year sentence at a women's prison in Joliet, Quebec. Homolka's lawyer, Mark LaBelle, says he is totally in agreement with the destruction of the tapes and contends the move won't have any effect on Homolka's case because she doesn't want to appeal conviction. Donna French says the destruction of those painful images is the best Christmas present her family has had in over eight and a half years. This Christmas, Kristen would have been 25 years old. Alicia K. Markson, CFDO News, St. Cap. Of uh, his father, uh, Ken Bernardo, who, uh, you know, the Bernardo family is a very quiet family, obviously a notorious family. But uh, I've interviewed him, and, and he has a number of things to say about uh, everything from, you know, the, the move from Kingston Pan and other things. Okay, and, and you know, there's a, another element here that uh, I know that you talk about, and that's the fact that Russell Williams' family is now talking to the Bernardo family. That's right, and uh, it, it's interesting that they were both, uh, you know, kind of in this wing. And, you know, it's strange because Bernardo and, and uh, Russell Williams actually traveled the same path. They, they lived in the same neighborhood in Scarborough. They went to the same college and I, I think even crossed uh, the hallways at the same high school at times, same malls. And Paul Bernardo's father said that, you know, while they don't acknowledge that they knew each other, and I, I'm told that they did know each other um, by police sources, but uh, they haven't acknowledged it. He wonders if, uh, Paul has told him, he wonders if he may have passed by him or run into him here or there, that kind of thing. But anyway, the news is that uh, Ken Bernardo says that he regularly, uh, several times, has spoken to Mary Elizabeth Harriman, who is Russell Williams' wife, when she was going to visit him. Now, Russell Williams, as part of this story, has also been moved to Quebec. I don't know the prison that he's been moved to. Uh, I'm still trying to work on that, but he has been moved to, to Quebec. And uh, the Bernardos and the Williams, I guess, waiting in the, uh, the waiting room, if you will, uh, for their uh, prisoner uh, loved ones, have uh, got to know each other. And, Ken Bernardo described Mary Elizabeth Harriman as a very classy lady. Now, that's not how a lot of people feel about her. You know, in fact, that she sued the OPP for damage to her home when they exercised a, uh, a warrant to search the home. I think a lot of people wonder about, you know, how it is that most of the treasure trove of evidence in the Russell Williams case was found in her home with her there. And having, you know, the question I would ask her is, did you never trip over any of it or wonder about bags of... Uh, you know, of women's uh, clothing, etc. So, uh, pretty interesting uh, look at the underbelly of, of the, uh, the penal system here in Canada. Joe, great introduction to the story. Uh, you know, we would urge our viewers to definitely either pick up the Toronto Sun or check out the website. Uh, this, is, is, this is incredible, and I know we're just kind of tip of the iceberg right now. There's a lot more to this, and I know if anybody's going to dig up the dirt, it's going to be Joe Warmington. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. You. beat and terrorized his wife Carla daily. He was a stalker and a suspect in over 19 rapes. Gruesome videotapes were found in their suburban home. Records of schoolgirls kidnapped, drugged, raped, and killed. The first victim, none other than Carla's own sister Tammy. The 15-year-old died just hours after Carla drugged her drink. 
Then she and Paul sexually assaulted Tammy and left her to drown in her own vomit. Paul brought their next victim home, 14-year-old Leslie Mahaffey, who was tortured, raped, and murdered. 15-year-old Kristen French faced the same horror. Both girls' bodies were found naked, but it took a long time before authorities connected this perfect couple with one of the ugliest crimes in Canada. Van Smyrnas was not only Paul Bernardo's best friend since childhood, but he was there the night Paul first met Carla Homolka and was the best man at their wedding. Joanne is Van's wife, who socialized with the couple and saw Paul abuse Carla. Al was also a friend of the couple, and Patty Seeger was Carla's aunt and the first one to hear Carla confess. Now, Van, you and Paul were best friends. Yes. Uh, did he always have this uh, attraction for young girls? Yes. It all started, uh, well, uh, around when he was 16, when his mother first told him that you're, uh, that's not your real father. And uh, he had a, a very rebellious, uh, uh, something happened to him. He, it was, there was some sort of fight inside him. And he wanted to always have, uh, from then on, like he was always looking for older women at that time, you know, before his 16th birthday. And then when his 16th birthday kicked in, his mother told him, that's not your real father, this is your real father. And then all of a sudden, and then all like of a sudden it was like, he wanted, uh, younger women, he wanted to manipulate and uh, conquer, conquer. Uh, Didn't he even have a phrase like a virgin farm? Yes. What did yes. what did that mean? Uh, well, what, what's that? A slave farm. A slave, slave, slave farm. farm. Virgin slave farm. He yeah. Spoke to he farm. liked virgins, virgin young virgins that he could turn into sex slaves. Exactly. You knew about this? Well, uh, he had mentioned that a couple of times as a, as a joke. Well, when you uh, always seemed like a joke. What was he like in in, in, in company? company? He had a he had a silver tongue. He could talk to anybody, any girl, like like he nothing. It was very manipulative. Very charming. He uh, could make you. He he tell you what you wanted to hear. Make you believe anything you wanted to hear. He uh, I don't know. I, when I first met him, I was very young and influential, and uh, I, don't, I looked up to him as a bigger brother sort of thing. And uh, after that, you know, I wanted to be just like Paul, and... Uh, yeah, Paul would categorize uh, it as the BBD. He'd give girls the bigger, better deal. He'd wine them and dine them in the beginning, and then eventually um, he'd turn cold, and he'd get sick and tired of them and, and, and want to go off with other women. You were there the night that he met Carla. Yes. What was that like? Uh, well, we, we had... That night, he had an argument with a girl from the past, so uh, I suggested, actually, we should go out and have a coffee and talk about it. So we went to a Howard Johnson's restaurant near my house, and we pulled in, and we walked right up, and we saw these two girls sitting in a booth. How old was Carl at the time? Carl was 17, and her friend was 17. And Paul was 20? 23 or 24. Okay. And what happened was that these girls were staring at us, so we, we went and sat down, and the girls were... You know, we're very talented. That she was attracted to him immediately. Yes, there was a magnetism from right from the start. And where and where did that end up that night? In bed, about an hour later. They were uh, an hour later. An Paul. hour later, yeah. We we were walking Paul towards the hotel room. <laughs> Carla, seventeen years old. Exactly. And it and ended up uh, in bed. Yes. An hour later. 
Exactly. And then the next weekend, right. she invited you and Paul down to her town, right? Yes. And after that, they were inseparable. Yes. Okay. And did he change it all after he met her? Did she change it all after she met him? Oh, actually, he didn't change. He was still a party kind of guy. He had, a, he had two lives. Uh, his girlfriend in St. Catherine, and in Toronto, his party friends and other women. Joanne, you met, eventually you met Carl. Yeah. Knew her a long time, didn't you? Mm -hmm. Known her a long time. Yeah. How would you describe her? Um, bubbly, outgoing, but very submissive to whatever Paul said. Tell, talk to me about that. I mean, what does that it's, mean? We weren't allowed to go out by ourselves. We had to, there always had to be Van and Paul with us. He was always afraid that, well, obviously, you know, he'd be afraid that she would say something to me if she wasn't there. So it was no phone calls. He was the one that always answered the telephone. Say something about what? How he was abusing her? Yeah. He was afraid that she'd eventually uh, Did you know that she was being somebody. abused? Uh, no, no signs of Did abuse. Did you know she was being abused? Verbally, yes. Verbally. It was verbal. He, he always called her his nickname. was that my little slut and I was a bitch. She always, he always said that? Always. In public? Oh, yeah. In public. And what, and what was her reaction when, when uh, he said Obedient. that? Obedient. Like it was normal. Like totally normal. She never talked about him in any negative way. Never. Not until after she was arrested, of course, but um, before that. Right. Oh, actually. Very, uh, she was very, if she said anything negative about it, uh, there would be negative repercussions about it. Finally, she left after she was being, after she was beaten by a flashlight. I think she was persuaded to leave by her, her father, mother and father. Right. And she ended up, Patty, at your house, didn't she? And what, what, were the, what were the bruises like on her? She couldn't walk. She had bruises all over her legs. Her head, she made me feel her head, and it was, like, really squishy. It was really gross. Like, I felt really bad for her at that point. Did she still love him? Yeah, she did. And at the same time, she's at your house, and what's the first thing she wants to do when she comes to live with you? She wants to go and look for some men. <laughs> like, so what's I, the party? She's battered, she's bruised, she's got bumps on her head, these squishy marks, Hair's coming out, there are bald spots in her head, and she wants to go chase God. Do you think that she was as much of a victim as she's been portrayed? I don't think so, no. Why not? Well, she's an actress. I mean, she could turn her emotions off just like that. You know, one moment she'd be happy and carrying on, and the next thing she'd be just crying, like, for no apparent reason. Like, I mean, she's fooled a lot of people. She fooled a lot of people. And so did Paul fool a lot of people. And when we come back, we are going to hear every one of the most sordid, horrific details that were, were behind closed doors in that house that anyone could possibly imagine. When we come back, the man who found the naked corpse of one of Paul and Carla's tortured young victims. Roger Boyer discovered Kristen French's lifeless body. He's joining us now on the phone from Canada. Uh, Roger, you were out in your car one day, right? I was driving along and I noticed a combine on my side, like a conveyor belt, 
in the bush. I backed up to get out of my truck, and I started walking in about 10, 12 feet. I went by a big tree, and I was looking at some stuff in that, and uh, I turned by the tree to my left, and I looked in, down into the bushes, and that, it looked like a pink carpet to me. And I went to go ahead to go through the combine, and then I said, can be. So I come back towards my truck, and I come down on, like, on the feet. And uh, it, 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 it was a body like me, and uh, I couldn't believe it. And I seen the hair was cut real short, and by the size of the feet and the small hands, I didn't know if it was a girl or a boy. So as I turned around, I ran to my truck, and uh, I went to the first farm, and... Uh, I knocked on the door, a young gentleman answered the door, and I told him to phone the police, I just found the body up the road. Right. How did they treat you once they, once they got your story? Oh, once they got my story, they got, uh, they took my shoes for, uh, footprints. They started, you became a suspect, didn't you? Yeah, I became a suspect as soon as they, they took the, my tire tracks, uh, my truck imprints, they took, uh, my shoe prints and my, the boots I was wearing, and then they kept coming back every week and questioning me. I was a suspect for almost seven months. Seven months? Yeah. For almost seven months, I was a suspect until she she testified against her husband. That's until Carla they... testified against her husband in court. Yeah. Okay. That's Man, yeah. you were almost you were a suspect too, weren't you? Yeah. Uh, it, it seemed to uh, be because of the way they were questioning me in the beginning. Oh, they were asking for semen samples and everything. They asked him for semen yeah. samples. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's... Because why? Well, they wanted to know why I, I knew so much about him, why I thought that he was a suspect. They There's, thought it was two men. They, they thought it was two men was in her. the beginning. Didn't they have any idea about Paul? They did. They yes, had, they had semen samples. Eight months they had before they samples. arrested Paul, I came forward to the Ontario Provincial Police, and I said, and we, we sat down, we, we talked initially for the f for first three hours. Because and there had been rumors about Paul Bernardo for a long time, hadn't there? Uh, well, Weren't there rumors about all the rapes that had happened in, Scar in the Scarborough district of Toronto? Well, about two, months, two years before uh, Kristen French, there was a Scarborough rape that's uh, running around. And what I had noticed is they had put a composite in the paper, and they wrote a FBI profile stating that he's an anger retaliatory person and hates his mother. Paul? As soon as I looked at the picture, I go, that's him. Did you ever go to the cops? I went with my brother and uh, my sister. I went to their, their house, and she said, I'll turn them in, you know, because I wanted to remain anonymous towards this. So it, my brother's wife went. They called them in and did uh, DNA samples and just sat on the shelf for years. With 2,300 others. They sat on the shelf. They had his blood samples, semen samples. They had everything he needed to convict them. They had hair samples, and it sat there, and it rotted on the shelf. Patty? Uh, Carla, when, when she was living with you after she left Paul and she's battered and, and bruised, she confesses to her part in these killings, doesn't she? How does she do that? Well, she didn't really confess to me what she did. She told me what Paul had done. And she, with Kristen French, she told me that, uh, that Paul had taken her from the church and he killed her and that she took part in cutting her hair. Um, last in Mojave, she said that Paul took her from her own backyard, killed her also, and the only thing that Carla really gave her was uh, the halcyon or whatever it was that uh, she the was with, and gave her a teddy bear to hug before she died. Did she talk about her sister? No, she didn't. 
Did she ever talk about her sister and what she did to her sister? Not a word. Everybody, well, you had to understand, nobody suspected her that she was killed. Everybody thought that she died a young girl. Well, well put it to this way, did Paul and Carla go to her funeral? Yeah. Yes. What were they like at the funeral? They were sort of straw. They were to the point where they, they didn't talk to anybody. Um, we, we comforted them as much as we could. Paul, you know, he acknowledged you were there, but just kind of went back into his own world. I just figured, you know, he spent he spent half an hour trying to resuscitate this girl, or 20 minutes trying to resuscitate this girl, until the ambulance and paramedics got there, and uh, she ended up dying. Now all of the United States knows about this story. Paul Bernardo is serving life in prison, but with a chance for parole. Carla is serving 12 years. That's it. How sadistic, how brutal were their crimes? Guess what? They even videotaped all their perversive acts. All their perverted acts, they videotaped. They even taped their involvement in the death of Carla's 15-year-old sister. The public has never seen these videotapes. However, we will meet two people who did see them. Next. your family on the next Maury Povich show. We're talking about the picture-perfect couple, Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka, the Ken and Barbie killers. That's what they're calling them in Canada. Their real-life world of bizarre and sadistic sexual escapades exposed to an entire country. Now, Paul and Carla were both arrested for their heinous crimes. Only Paul actually went to trial. Carla cut a deal. She got 12 years in prison before she ever testified against her husband. Dr. Nancy Lanz is a clinical psychologist who covered the trial. And Susan Spatoni and Tina Danzer were jurors for Paul Bernardo's trial. You viewed the tapes, didn't you, Susan? Yes. Could you, could you watch them without turning away? No. Why? Tell me about that. The videotapes, I thought I knew what I was in for, and that, that wasn't the case. They were, they were vicious and, and horrifying. You could watch the most gruesome movie and not... Show? They showed a lot of girls actually being assaulted, but specifically Leslie Mahopi and Kristen French and Tammy Hamoka, which was three girls that died. Girls and then we saw the sexual assault of Tammy Homolka, Christian French, and Leslie Mahaffey. You saw on videotape the assault of Paul on Tammy, Carla's 15-year-old sister. Yes, Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka both and were on videotape. Carla assaulted her as well? Yes. Sexually? Sexually assaulted her, yes. And wasn't there at a time she turned to the camera? Was it, Did somebody turn to a camera during all this? Yes, yes. There, was, there were spoken words by both on the camera. And uh, did it seem that Carla was enjoying herself throughout all this? 
In the Tammy Homolka videotape, it was clear that she wasn't, that she wanted no part of that. The Leslie Mahaffey tape, Carla Homolka never spoke through the videotaping. And her reaction was pretty bland. If you had seen only the videotape of Kristen French with Paul and Carla, you may have thought differently. You may have thought differently. Peter, what was your impression? They were absolutely horrible. And it was very hard because you felt trapped. There was no place to go. You couldn't get away from the videos. And we watched them not just once. We had to watch them numerous times. And as time went on, even if you weren't watching, you knew what was coming by the sounds that you were hearing. Because not only were they raped, they were beaten. It, it was just awful. Nobody in the courtroom was allowed to view the tape except the jury, the judge, the attorneys, and the defendant. Paul Bernardo watched the tape as they were played. What did he see? I think he was enjoying himself. There was numerous times when either the Crown or the defense was pointing something out on the videotape while he was on the stand, and he would say, why don't you play it again? I, I didn't catch that. And I'm sure and he you was think it was just for, his, for enjoyment. his enjoyment. I do believe that, yes. What were you going to say, Alan? I was just going to say that these tapes were not to be viewed by anybody, but, you know, by the general public, but they were, everybody heard it. They played the, the audio version of it, and I don't think, in, I don't, I can't understand the reasoning. You heard, you heard the tapes in court, didn't you, uh, Dr. Lance? That's right. And, and what did they sound like? Well, when the kids were really being uh, brutalized, they were screaming for their lives. I mean, they were, they were clearly in distress. And there were threats on the tape. If you don't do this right, I may kill you. And these, these children were, were just beside themselves. I think hearing the audio and not seeing the video was worse than hearing the audio and seeing the video. I think you, hearing the things that were going on and being said were, it was more terrifying than not seeing the video. Dr. Lange, do you think you could diagnose Paul Bernardo? Well, it's better if you have the benefit of a psychological evaluation where, we, where you give him tests that after having watched him on the witness stand and after hearing so many of the things that have transpired, we can come to some conclusions about uh, what his makeup probably was all about. And what was it? Well, it's strongly suggested that he had a psychopathic personality, which is uh, a psychopath is someone who, um, well, the hallmark is a stunning lack of conscience, and um, their game is uh, self-gratification at any cost. And, his, and they're the con men of the world. They are the people who, who rape and plunder and who sometimes go on to kill. And Carla? Can you, can you diagnose her for us? Well, um, there's a division of thought about that. Uh, it seems as though that um, she was victimized to some degree. I mean, after all, she was... Well, we saw beaten. the bruises. We saw the, 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 the battering that, that she took. I mean, there were photos of that. We've seen that. It is a famous picture of that. But, uh, so, so obviously, in one way, she was a victim. But Absolutely. is there enough to suggest that she was also part of the, per uh, a perpetrator as well? If you ask me, I'm going to say that I think she was. Because a lot of battered women are not exactly, uh, do not exactly present the way she presented. I mean, usually they're very meek, 
They don't usually participate in crime, let alone murder, um, or they're not present for it. And if they have any anger or any, if any killing goes on, it's towards the perpetrator, who is the battering spouse. And in this case, she worked in tandem with him. And not only that, she could have drawn the line at, in many instances earlier on, but she chose to continue going on with him. And but Joanne, who knew her, you think of her more as a victim, don't you? Um, yeah, to an extent. I would have drawn, like, you have to draw the line when it comes to your own sister. There's no getting around it. She's a victim. I mean, she had more than enough chance to leave. After her sister oh. died, she could have left. I mean, battered, what? But she left him. Yeah, she but the battered woman's abuse. She didn't leave. No, the battered, the battered out. woman's abuse only goes so far. I mean, but after she left. Dad, I'm sorry, I would have left after the first Don't time. Don't you, you think she still loves him? Uh, I she do. says yeah. no. I she says no, I but I don't know. When we come back, a woman who was stalked by Paul Bernardo. She could have been another of his victims, but she wasn't. A promotional fee has been provided by... I was just wondering from Van, I guess, how much you were friends, how much drugs or alcohol, or was there no, he was just psycho, and Oh, yeah, he, that didn't he, he drank a, a lot, and uh, he was also, from what I remember, in the last three months before he got arrested, he was growing marijuana in his basement. Yeah, but, but when you guys were palling around, you palled around a long time. Yes. I mean, tell me about his social habits. Was he a drinker, mostly? He drank all the drugs time. Drugs or no drugs? Yes. yes, he smoked up a lot. Yes, all the time. Okay, and I've heard that he also uh, did cocaine, okay? My question was mostly for Carla's aunt. What kind of family life did she have to have such low self-esteem? I mean, you don't sleep with a guy after an hour of knowing him in a coffee shop. What was going on in her family life? She was very much by her family. She was. They had a very close family, and everybody, like, their, their parents' lives revolved around the daughters. But Van, wasn't Paul good. upset because he found out that he wasn't the first to sleep with very her? Very upset. He couldn't stand it. it. It drove him crazy. Right. So he opted to find another girl who was a virgin. So I had to do something like that to get involved with it. She's just got to be sick as he is. They both don't deserve to be walking the street. No, no. I think in her Definitely case, not. It, it falls into the category of the battered wife syndrome. You'll see to a certain degree. Her sister wasn't supposed to die. Her sister was supposed to be a Christmas gift for Paul, from her sister. Yeah, but the thing is, she could have... Whoa! She could have Carla was supposed to give Paul, as a Christmas gift, her 15-year-old sister as, yes, to yes, play with. As a large treat, to play with, do what he wants for a few hours. Yeah. She was drugged. She was given a drug halcyon. And it was determined that she was given an excess amount that would kill her. She started choking and throwing up on her own vomit. Is what led now, on the phone is a woman named Rachel. Rachel was stalked by Paul Bernardo. At the same time that they found the body of Leslie Mahaffey. Rachel, even though Paul Bernardo is behind bars for at least 25 years, you still live in fear, don't you? Oh, yes, I do. Why? <laughs> um, well, I mean, you're, when you're followed by someone like that, I mean, you don't know what's going to happen. If, if he's going to get out, like, he, he will be up for parole sometime. I don't think he'll get out, but it's still frightening what happened. I mean, like, I never got touched by him or what, but I've been followed twice. And I was just so afraid to get out of my car because I didn't know what was going to happen. He followed you twice? Yes. And, um, and this was, a, as we said, around the time that one of the bodies was found. 
Uh, what did he look like? How did he act? Did, did he try to make eye contact? Yes, what did he, he do? Yes, he did. He, he was in his car, and I was coming home one night, and um, he, I was at a light, and I could tell someone was just staring at you, like just staring you down. And I was like, I didn't know this guy. And, I, and then when he went by me, he just like smiled, and I went by, and I didn't know who the guy was. So I went, and then he did a U-turn. He followed me and to my house and stuff. So um, all of a sudden, I lost him, and I went into my house. As I was opening the door, I saw him drive slowly by my by my house, stop, and he was waving to me like to come towards the car, like smiling and stuff. And uh, I just went in the house, shut the door, and uh, just went to bed. And about two weeks later, same thing happened. I was going to my husband's house, well, my boyfriend at the time. Um, he followed me again for about an hour or so. Uh, I was going through red lights. I was so scared, like I didn't know, because I knew it was the same guy. When I went to my my boyfriend's house, he got out of his car. He parked his car around the corner. He walked, he was two houses down from where I was staying. And I was in the house by myself. Like, I was scared. Like, if I didn't, um, there's just something told me I had to get in my car, which I stayed in my car until my boyfriend got home. But if I would have went in there that, that minute, he was like two houses down. He was coming to the house. He knew where I was. So he could have walked in. He and could, yes, because I was in the backyard. And grabbed you. Yes. The way he, the way he grabbed others. Yes, and that's what I'm scared of. I still have nightmares and stuff. And well, thank you very much, Rachel. No Rachel, uh, everybody thought they were the perfect couple, as we said, but why did it take so long to realize that they were really cold-blooded killers? At their wedding, the beautiful couple, Paul and Carla, I mean, we've shown pictures of this. You know, they rode through town in a horse-driven uh, carriage. At home, the bride and groom smiled for the cameras. They videotaped their sexual assaults against their young victims, seeming to enjoy living out their perverse fantasies. Alan Cairns is the co-author of the book, Deadly Innocence. Now, this has been, O.J.'s been the topic of conversation here, Alan. Uh, is it, has, has it been that way in Canada on this trial? Pretty well. There hasn't been any other topic. Uh, it's pretty well swept the nation by storm. I mean, we wanted to do this story during the trial. I mean, you would have thought we were going to commit one of the great heinous acts of all time. I mean, the Canadian authorities are faxing us a memo saying, please don't do this. We have a gag order out, a gag order. Yeah, well... It, how it actually happened is Carla Homolka went to trial, pled guilty, was sentenced to 12 years, and there was a publication ban put on the facts that were disclosed at her trial because it, the authorities didn't want to jeopardize Paul Bernardo's, quote, fair trial. Um, some take it that the authorities really didn't want uh, to bring too much scrutiny on the deal that Carla Homolka cut with the authorities. Are the victim's families satisfied? Um, no, they're not. And, I don't think they ever will be satisfied. No, they, like they, now, they're not satisfied because of what? First of all, we, we have to understand this. Susan and Tina had nothing to do with the sentence given Paul Bernardo or Carla Homolka. You just come back with a guilt or innocence verdict. And by the way, was that tough to get? Tough to reach? We can't speak of deliberations, unfortunately. That's something you can't? in Canada that... We can in this a, country. It's that's against another, the law. It's against the law. That's the only thing. Maybe we should have that in this country. 
It's not a bad idea. Given what I saw on OJ, I think that's yeah, probably it's, not, it's yeah. pretty good. So you can't talk about the liberation. No. Okay. But we can talk about time. How long? How long did it take you? Just under nine hours. Fine. Uh, now getting back. Mm -hmm. uh, is it because of the sentence? No, it's because they lost their daughters, and uh, in tragic circumstances. Um, and you also have to realize too that they're not satisfied with the sentence that was given Carla Homolka. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, Right. Yeah. Uh, I have a question for the friend. If y'all keep in touch with them, do they have any signs of remorse towards their action? There have been letters that have been published in the newspaper, and they, uh, they, there was no remorse from Carla Carla's at all. Carla's was, in her letter, I believe it was to one of her friends, that her, uh, her sentence being in jail was like being away at a country club. If I, if I can interrupt here, really, Carla is serving 12 years in prison. That, that's not a short amount of time. That well, wait a second, though. Is she serving 12 years? She's only, she's only serving four. That's not true. That's not true. I, I'm well, sorry. That, I'm sorry that, to disagree. That's a, she could serve only four. It depends, right? She could be out in four by Canadian law, which allows parole after one third of sentence. But given the political climate in Canada and the notoriety of this case, and specifically the notoriety of, of Carla Homolka, that isn't going to happen. She might be out in, in eight. Um, there's a move afoot by the victim's families to have her detained as a high-risk offender, and, and then she would be in for a full 12 years. And, and I would highly suspect that that's what's going to happen. And Paul Bernardo, how long will he serve? Well, he, he's life uh, imprisonment, which means life. He, his first crack at parole is after 25 years. Um, we don't have um, consecutive sentences like you do in the United States. Um, in the States, for example, two murders would net 50 years. In Canada, it's 25 years and only. And he could also be called a, a, considered a dangerous criminal, and therefore the, he the could government, serve. Yes, the government is already uh, proceeding on, uh, on those grounds to try and have him labeled a dangerous offender. And at that point, he, he, his chances of getting out ever are minimal. She claimed to be a battered wife, a victim at the hands of her own husband. But was she a victim, or was Carla Homolka a willing participant? We'll find out next and get your question as well. to their house was probably 100 meters away and let's face it who, who believes that your next door neighbor is going to be doing something like this this victim um this is for the friends of the victims friends i don't of the, friends uh, of Bernardo yeah Carla. Carla? i can't understand how you how you wouldn't have known being that you were so close to them and no, you went out that. you went out with paul I, I turned actually i turned paul in eight months before he was arrested, and I kept and I kept on pleading with the police calling. I got a dollar for every time I heard that. Well, you heard it, but okay, answer it. But answer it for us. I've lost jobs. I've lost friends. You were right there. Why didn't you get help? Tell the parents. I'm not a cop. I can't answer. You say you're tired of hearing that question. Give us an answer. The cops kept reassuring us that it was not them. It was not him. And I go, wait a second. The cops said it to us. The cops said it to us. And Alan, tell respond. You know, okay, you heard of Heckle or Jekyll and Hyde. You know, there's a person with two two personalities like he kept us apart like we were friends but he he would say to him you know i'm such a idiot and I, he would say to me he's such a loser and you know and he he'd put us against each other one so we, against talk, the other. So we couldn't collaborate our stories and you, you know to that comment i don't know how that. and you saw we didn't, no, no. 
There was never any signs other than... She no, never no, I, cried about never it. She never complained about it. Was it was never talked You said that he would call her his personal slot and this and that. You should have called him down on that. Why do you keep company we with did, him? We did, but he broke it off. There are several points. If I could interject as an independent arbiter here, um, in my and Scott and I's uh, research on the book, it is quite clear that, that Bon and Joanne um, did call Paul on his treatment of Carla. But of course, he would go into a rage and say, don't you interfere with my marriage, and he would, he would put them on the spot and make them feel bad. You've got to understand that he's the ultimate manipulator, complete predator, he's a complete psychopath, and he will do anything, any means. Right. Yeah, you know, our, even, our lives have changed so much because of this. Like, right. like, we've completely done a 360 with our lives. I mean, this guy, if I could, I probably would have killed him myself. I mean, had I known now what I knew then, naturally, he would not... Sure, you go back and play back all the times that you thought you should have known something when you didn't. Did. Hindsight is twenty twenty, right? Less it's totally bogus what happened. You body was in the root cellar of the house when Carla's parents were there for dinner. Right. They didn't yeah, know. Yeah, how come her parents didn't know? How come her parents didn't turn her in? <laughs> I think we're misdirecting anger on the wrong people here. Right. That's right. And I, th I think that's true. I think we're all angry. We don't know where to turn. And who do we... we, we who knows more information than anybody else? We assume those people who knew the two perpetrators. No, it's easy. It's not done either. That's what I don't understand. If if they if 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 they had all this independent evidence, Alan, over the years yeah. of this guy, why didn't well, they build a case? Well, it's not that simple. I mean, it, it's simple now, starting with Paul Bernardo and filtering down to all the things that allegedly the cops did wrong and maybe the friends didn't see. But it's not that simple. You have to start with the dead girls, and you start with four million people as potential suspects. You don't start with Paul Bernardo. You start with two or three hundred suspects. Then Paul Bernardo, when, when Vaughn's sister-in-law uh, sister called him in, was one of uh, many, many suspects, many hundreds of suspects. He matched the composite, as Vaughn said. Um, they took his DNA sample. But you cannot test 100, 200 possible suspect DNA samples in two weeks. It doesn't happen. And with budget restraints of, of the 1990s, the Ontario government couldn't do that. That was the problem. There wasn't enough money, not enough scientists to do the tests. We'll be back right after this. If you would like to join us in the studio audience, then call or write for free tickets. It's the Maury Povich Show, 221 West 26th Street, New York, New York, 10001. Or call 212-989-3622. You should get life and end it. Well, well it's, yeah, and it's a fair question. It's, it's one that we ask ourselves. Uh, I, as an author, ask myself, a reporter. Um, it's one I'm sure that the jurors have asked themselves. Um, in my opinion, and, and from based on what I know, they had no other choice. Um, Why the did time, they have no other choice? Well, there was no evidence that came out of the house that linked Paul Bernardo directly Except with the murder. Well, well, hold on. But they didn't I mean, have the videotape. Video but eventually the they did. Well, hold on here. We told them that there were videotapes. They should have looked. That's you correct. You told them, Joanne? We told them. We told okay. them. Paul said that Carla personally killed her sister. This, this is true. Al, Al told them the same thing. Patty told them the same thing. Now, they knew the videotapes were in the house. They didn't know where they were. Three months of search went by. They didn't find the videotapes. And furthermore, they didn't find any evidence to pin Paul Bernardo directly to the murders of the girls. The videotapes didn't came up, come up until well after the deal was secured. We want to say before we, before we leave, and this, this is very important, because this is a huge case in Canada. Everybody knows about it. A lot of people know of these people. 
We want to say that not one person who appeared on the show today was paid. They did not want to be paid. They didn't feel, and we didn't want to pay them. And so they have their respect and their, and their integrity. And so therefore they came uh, just to tell this story. And as we leave, maybe we should find out why you came. Why I came? Yeah. I think to that, answer questions like that, ladies over there. Because yeah. you're tired of, hearing. tired of hearing it. Okay. I, I think Carla's sentence was a farce. The, the, the problem was, is, is, is the, the police didn't want to work together. Everyone was holding their cards up close to their face, and they don't want to open, expose, and say, look what I have. And I, that's why, why are you shaking your head. It, it's, the case was so huge over so many jurisdictions. The, the, the thing called linkage blindness happened, and police forces just didn't realize that these two cases were connected. Do you feel, as jurors, uh, what, what are your feelings afterwards? I think everyone involved did a terrific job in this trial. And actually, the Carla Homoka deal, I really have to comment about that. It, it, it's important. They didn't have the videotapes at the time of the plea bargain. And without those videotapes, I'm not sure that Paul Bernardo would have been convicted of first-degree murder. Really? Apparently, Paul Absolutely. wanted to um, have his lawyer, Ken Murray, hold on to the tapes because he thought that, in deposition, Carla would say things that would later be borne out to be totally false when the videotapes were shown. Do you think he could have convicted him without those tapes? I don't think so. I think we maybe could have come back with manslaughter. Um, that you there's also uh, um, a thing called the Scarborough Rapist on alleged uh, rapes in well, Scarborough. They could have brought he, those forward first. He, according first. to many, is he would have been in jail for years anyways until we did get the tapes, that there were tapes. He would have been in jail forever anyways as a dangerous offender. I want to thank all of you for coming. So there's no deal. Uh, I, I think that this is probably the first the time that uh, this country has had a detailed uh, look at what this was all about. Can I have the last word? <laughs> Quickly. Um, this is a very complex case. It's not a question of black and white and who is uh, a psychopath and who isn't a psychopath. There's a complete lives of people that go back 30 years, and you've got to study it very carefully to get your answers. And even and that's why it is called, in Canada, the murder of the century. I thank you so much. Thank you out there. Until next time, America. Tomorrow, each day, thousands of children are reported missing, but more and more kids are being abducted from shopping malls. Learn how to protect your family tomorrow. A promotional fee has been provided by Advanced Formula Centrum with more vitamins and minerals than any leading brand. Centrum, more complete.